Every year, hundreds of new books are published dealing with demonism, uh, witchcraft, magic, spiritism, ghosts. Every new television season brings a new one to primetime or a documentary on astrology or fortune-telling or divination, the paranormal. Channeling is now primetime. Communicating to the dead through spiritists is now mainstream. Just Google the word as I did in my study, demon, and you'll get more than 70 million places to surf. It doesn't really matter if you're a Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Native American, into fire worship. Demons have infiltrated every region of the human race. To make it even more convenient, those who say they are in touch with angels, good or fallen, it really doesn't matter to people who are in touch with them, evidently. But those beings they are in touch with can quote from the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Quran, the Kabbalah, or whatever. This growing fascination sort of gushes over how spirit guides are there to help mankind reach its fullest potential. It's interesting that the growing following of spirit guides, who, by the way, deny the Bible, deny these spirit guides, deny the deity of Christ, deny sin, deny the gospel, deny anything other than the fact that we want you to be the best that you can be. They are adamant, though, these people that follow after them by the millions now, that these guides want to really provide wisdom. They really want to provide help. They want to give us assurance. They want to tell us the truth about the other world beyond. Of course, they fail to heed the warning of Scripture that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that they deliver a different gospel than the gospel of Christ, which can truly save. Galatians 1, 6. Now, the church doesn't really help the problem by its own superstitions through the centuries along with this sort of rather anemic portrayal of good angels you usually see them in soft flowing gowns and effeminate faces Uh, for centuries in fact if you go to the museum you'll see the art the most popular way to portray angels was as fat little naked babies that just sort of hovered around with their little wings making everybody feel good and feel loved but you go to the bible and discover good angels used by God, they were so impressive that they usually had to begin their conversation with a human being with the words, fear not. And the tense would be, stop being afraid. In one biblical account, one angel directed by God was responsible for killing 200,000 enemy soldiers single-handedly. No fat little baby is going to do that. I haven't seen it happen yet, okay? There are people in the nursery wondering. I'm sure it was some of them. (laughs) Don't repeat me on that one, okay? To add to the confusion, the church has for centuries presented Satan and his demons as potentially out of God's control. We're not really sure who's going to win here. We think we've got every reason to worry. Uh, Does God, there are so many of these demons, does he really have a handle on it? which is horrible theology. The truth is the Bible introduces us to a demonic world that is both terrifying to mankind, yet controlled by God in their every uh, movement. You never want to underestimate the cunning and destructive power of Satan and his demon horde, but you don't want to overestimate his abilities either and the abilities of demons. People who dabble in sorcery and astrology and play games uh, like the Ouija board and uh, mock at 
play at seances and divination or opening their minds to a real and powerful world that really only has one desire, and that is the destruction of their lives and their eternal damnation. Make no mistake about it. One woman I read of claims to be able to receive direction from her angel guide, specifically for the benefit of mankind, and and she'll give you your own specific vision, personally delivered through her from this guide. You send in your $200, of course, per vision. She'll get it to you. She'll get your name. She'll focus on a candle, slip into a trance, and receive a vision for you. And one person responded to this potential, whether it's true or not. He just said, what could be more comforting than that in an age of broken families and economic uncertainty and rising crime and loss of personal worth? The message of these spirit guides is, and I quote, love yourself unconditionally because the spirit guides say, we love you and we are always with you. In other words, we care about the human race. We really love you. We love people and we want your best. Your, your best is, is, is at our heart's desire. And so uh, we're here to give you assistance and direction and wisdom. And we're here to let you know that your uncle really did make it over to the other side. And we can prove we know that. The channeler will say because he just told me, this spirit guide, that, that he's talked to your uncle and his favorite shirt is that green flannel one, and, and which ends up being true. And demons can't communicate to those who will listen to them uh, at times truth. And so these people in the audience burst into tears. They know well, that's their uncle. It was a, a green flannel shirt and they... Don't stop to think about the fact that their uncle had nothing to do with Jesus Christ, nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with the gospel, but now they're under the impression that their uncle is safe. We've just heard from him. He must be all right. Demonic deception. Listen, divination and sorcery and communicating with the dead through channelers or spirit guides are all forbidden by God, clearly. In texts like... Deuteronomy 18. And listen, they're not forbidden by God because they are make-believe and he doesn't want you to mess around and waste your time and all that hocus-pocus. He, he warns us and, and in his uh, forbidding of it, warns us that this is a real spirit world and the forces of hell desire to deceive and destroy. Yet the average person would tell you on the street that they think they're probably okay even from them because even though life's a little uncertain, they would say, I've got my crystal hanging from my rearview mirror that you know, projects good energy, and I've got my shiny ball outside my door to ward off bad energy, and I've got just enough religion to serve as my little lucky rabbit's foot in case I need it, and I even have a picture of Jesus hanging in one of the back rooms in my house, and I've got a big white Bible on the coffee table, and so I'm set. I think I'm safe. And isn't it, though, reassuring that people that have heard from these beings from beyond, they really love us and they really care about us and they they want to help the human race maximize its potential. Reassuring. The truth is the Bible presents an entirely different picture. Demons are destroyers, accusers, deceivers, and the day will come when God will take them off his leash. And give them access to mankind to do what they've always wanted to do all along. Torment the unbeliever. Torment the believer. And kill the unbeliever. Lest he repent and follow after the one they really hate. Jesus Christ. Now if we place our current study. 
In Revelation, within its broader context, the Antichrist has been ruling now for several years, much of the known world. He's demon-empowered, satanically controlled or empowered. He has attempted to wield the scepter of world power, but God continually troubles that hope by unleashing world calamities, disasters, earthquakes, pestilences, tsunamis, crashing asteroids, water turning into blood, shortened daylight hours, and on and on and on, which hinders the Antichrist's desire to create a one-world utopia. But God in his mercy is, is blocking here and there his, uh, his enemies' attempts and giving those who will trust in Christ opportunity, though I believe by this time very few, if any, are as God's judgments increase in their terror and the torment increases as seven archangels sound their seven trumpets of judgment and nothing that we have studied up to this point, nothing has been experienced on the planet like these events in Revelation chapter 9 when the fifth and sixth trumpet sound and God opens the abyss and allows demons to invade the world of people. Let's rejoin our our study there. We'll cover this entire chapter. Verse 1, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He was given, friends, literally the, the key as this trumpet sounded. This fifth trumpet of the seven. A key to the opening of the bottomless pit is the word abusas. It's, it, it, it could be transliterated abyss. It's a bottomless pit. In other words, it, it refers to the fact that mankind cannot fathom its, its depth. The apostle John will use words to describe it as a deep cavern connected uh, to the earth's surface by a shaft with a lid on it that no one but God has the key to open. Now this has led some to speculate that hell is in the center of the earth. But this isn't talking about hell. This is talking about the abyss where millions of demons evidently are incarcerated being held by God at the point of their incarceration. We can't be sure, but millions are awaiting this hour of torment while evidently other demons are allowed to roam under his divine permission. Remember, when the demons left the demonized man, they begged the Lord to send them into the swine nearby instead of sending them where? To the abyss. Luke 8, 31, same word. By the way, hell isn't occupied by humans yet. The unbelievers who've died up until this point and until the final judgment, uh, they are awaiting in a place of torment called Hades. They will eventually, Revelation tells us, be taken and emptied into the lake of fire following the great white throne as Hades and death are poured into what we call hell, this lake, this eternal lake of fire. So just as Hades is the preliminary place of suffering for unbelievers, evidently the abyss is a preliminary place of incarceration for many fallen angels, otherwise known as demons. They're awaiting certain events. And this is one of them. When God will allow uh, many, if not all of them, loose. And so you'll read about demons being bound temporarily in Revelation 9, Revelation 11, Revelation 
20 where they're bound in the abyss and temporarily let out. Now, there are a lot of questions that are going to come out of this study that I won't answer. Just to let you know, you're going to have to go home and study yourself. But I will try to answer some of them. And one question that I want to answer is this one. Who is this star that was given a key to open the abyss? Notice the phrase in verse 1 again. I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. The perfect tense of the verb translated had fallen informs us that John did not see the star fall. It had already fallen sometime in the past and was already on earth when John saw him. And I say him on purpose because this is not an asteroid. This is not a meteor. This is not a chunk of rock we call a star. This is a him. It's a person, a personality. In fact, look there. It says, I I say him. Note, a key was given to him. Verse 2, he opened. The bottomless pit. This one that had fallen in some time past, I believe, is Satan, who is now given the key to open the abyss. Apollyon, the destroyer, will come out of that abyss. It isn't Satan. It's a leader of these uh, underworld demons waiting to be let loose. And he will lead them to bring terror to uh, the earth. But this star that has fallen finds agreement with other texts where, for instance, in Isaiah, we find the language fitting perfectly with what he said when he writes of the fall of Satan through his rebellion. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Isaiah 14, 12. Jesus Christ said plainly in Luke 10, 18, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Job referred to the angels prior to the fall of Satan as morning stars. Evidently, the angelic hosts were created prior to much of the universe so they could watch it occurring, and they rejoiced together. They sang for joy. They shouted uh, for joy as they sang the other Job 38, verse 7. So the one who is known as Satan is now given the key to open the Abyss. We know the giver of the key is our Lord who is introduced to us in Revelation chapter 1 as having the keys of the underworld. He has the authority over the underworld. And so now he gives this key with some semblance of ceremony to Satan who now, and who now goes over and at some point, not given uh, on the planet, opens the gate literally of this abyss and these demons come forward. Notice verse 2. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth nor any green thing nor any tree but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The rest of the foliage or much of it now is going to be burned. It wasn't already destroyed in the early trumpet judgment. These demons are only allowed to attack, you notice, humans who are not sealed by God as his own. This could either be a reference to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who were sealed, or perhaps at this point in the tribulation, as many believe, I would probably throw my head in as well. These are those who've come to place their faith in Christ, now sealed, probably no more coming to trust him as Lord and Savior. And these have still survived this far in the tribulation, and the demons are not allowed to torment them. Actually, even those who do not believe in Christ are going to be spared death. Look at verse 5. 
And they were not permitted, these demons, to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. It's a specific time. That's how long it's going to last. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. This judgment will be so terrifying and painful that people will try to kill themselves. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, it's only going to last five months. When five months are up, these demons are evidently commanded back into the abyss where they will wait until called once again. You might think it's only five months. Listen, five months is a long time for you to wait for something exciting to happen. It's a long time. But five months is an eternity if you're waiting for something terrible to end. They're waiting for it to end. To the human race, it's going to seem like this will never end. And so they will try to end their lives. Seek death rather than continue in this. But it will flee from them. We're not told exactly how, but it eludes them. The the pistol won't fire. Uh, The knife will break. The poison will won't take. Invisible forces will keep them from jumping off tall buildings or at least landing to hurt themselves. Uh, They'll float when they land in the water and survive. Any method of suicide will be ineffective. They will long to die, but they will not be allowed to. Little wonder they will try. John will describe these these terrors from the abyss. In fact, get your pencil ready because ten times John will resort to using the word like and appeared to be. In other words, he's going to talk about things that are literal and yet he's going to try to describe them and because human language can't do it, he's going to use simile. He's going to say, well, it's like this. These are like that. Follow along and you'll see how he does it. Verse 7. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Those are big locusts, by the way. And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. In other words, these demons have have taken a form, and it isn't just a strange animal or some freak of nature, something the state fair would put in a booth and for a couple dollars you could go look at. Now, these were creatures who have human faces which reveals the shocking truth to the humans they torment that they have intelligence and emotion. Their eyes will track with human eyes. They'll know that their intent is to hurt and to torment and all their organization and all their intention and all their rationale will be to inflict pain. The ability of demons, by the way, to assume material form is further illustrated in chapter 16 where demons will take on the appearance of frogs. So we have no doubt in believing they've taken these particular forms here. John writes further in verse 8, they had hair like the hair of women. In other words, long hair for the most part. This probably looked to John much like the Parthian warriors of ancient times who grew their hair long not out of an attempt to be feminine or some effeminacy, but intimidation. It it was startling, historians tell us, because it was unusual. The long hair made them appear even more fierce and intimidating as they galloped into battle. Notice verse 8 again. And their teeth were like the teeth of a lion's. They had long canines. 
They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. They had tails like scorpions that sting, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. This is no science fiction movie. Now, some have tried to lessen the strangeness of this judgment by interpreting these as you know, helicopters with the sound of metal, the whirling of blades, spitting, you know, uh, missiles, the stinging of bullets. Although it would be kind of odd because nobody's dying. I guess they get hit with bullets, but they don't, they aren't killed. Listen, there isn't any reason to interpret this any other way than plainly. At face value, understanding uh, a literal interpretation of scripture allows for simile and metaphor, which John clearly does here. We have no reason to not believe he's talking about something he literally sees Yet difficulty in describing it, and so he uses simile. These demons will assume the form of a terrifying, painfully destructive creature and will be given God-delegated time to chase, to literally corner, to bite, to sting, to terrorize the human race. And the world will know fully the truth of their former spirit guides. These demons will have taken off their masks of love and concern. There will be no more. We love you and we want your best. Now the truth about the demonic world's Hatred and bloodlust and destructive intent is now unveiled and the truth will now be out in the open that they, the fallen demons, especially hate humans. They hate humanity. This is God's highest creation. The one that can commune with him spirit to spirit. The one so loved by him that he sent his son to die for him. How they hate human beings and the deception will be over but don't miss the fact that demons are only operating under divine permission and for divine purposes they are the puppet servants of God notice again back in verse 1 the key was given to him he didn't have the key he couldn't get the key he couldn't wrestle it out of some angel's hand it had to be given to him and it was given to him verse 3 power was given to them delegated temporary power that is sourced in God. Imagine coming to this judgment, recognizing that they are doing the bidding of God mixed with their own hatred of humanity. It will be terrifying. Verse 4, they're, they're, they're told not to hurt foliage. In verse 5, they're not permitted to kill anyone. Our sovereign Lord is firmly in total control of even of the demon. Even in total chaos, Jesus Christ is in total control. And there is, by the way, I think, true theology expressed here, the sovereignty of God that we've sung about. And even as it relates to the demonic world, even as it relates to those in tribulation, uh, certainly uh, the temporary nature of this will be encouraging to those believers who study Revelation in that day probably more than any other book in the Bible. But it's true for us even today We can't call our tribulation their tribulation. We know nothing of this tribulation. But we do have tribulation, don't we? The word is used of the believer in the trials and temptations that we face. Well, it's good to just kind of stop for a moment here and and recognize that this is true for us as well. That God has determined the depth of your pain.
pain and the extent of its particular sting. He has told your suffering to go only so far and no further. Even though your world right now might be unsettled, God is not unseated. Even though it might be chaotic, he is in control of the chaos. Even now, although the world with devils filled, Luther wrote, would threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Even the demons are in his hand, controlled by his will. Well, no sooner have these scorpion demons been recalled to the abyss than another even more terrifying army of demons prepare to gallop throughout the earth as the Euphrates demons are unchained. Look at verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One sang to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels, which had been prepared for the hour, the very day, the very month, the very year, were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. No more stinging, now it's killing. It's happening here with these four that have been bound to the great river Euphrates. It's interesting for you to do a little study perhaps on your own one day of the Euphrates. It's prominent in scripture. It's the dividing line between east and west, between a near east and far east. It was the Euphrates. It was one of the rivers that flowed out of the Garden of Eden. It was at the banks of the Euphrates where Adam and Eve were tempted and where they failed and sinned. It was near the Euphrates the first murder occurred and the first martyr for righteousness was slain. Abel killed by Cain. It was here on the banks of the Euphrates that Jews lived out their bitter exile. It was here on the Euphrates that Babylon was built. It will be here where the Antichrist will rebuild that kingdom. And it is here where four powerful demons are unchained and released. Which means, since this is going to happen in the future, that there are four demons chained there now. Now that doesn't mean you can't canoe on the Euphrates. If you happen to go there, you should fear. Now, that isn't in any way true. These are invisible at this point, and they are controlled by God, and this is their location. Now, some would say these are good angels, not fallen angels, because they seem to be similar to the four angels at the corners of the earth, back in chapter 7, you may remember. But however, notice these angels are bound. This verb indicates this has been their condition. They have been bound. We're not told when. Could have been when they fell. Besides that, you never find in Scripture any reference to good angels ever being bound. So we would know then these are fallen angels, or as we call them, demons, appointed by God for just this day, week, month, and year to serve as agents of God's wrath. Now, if you thought that locusts with human heads and long hair looked like horses and If that was strange, put on your seatbelt for these horsemen. Verse 16, the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. Now you'd think, okay, that can't be true. John knew you'd think that. And so he added, and I heard the number of them. See that? 
he, he knew he'd have trouble grasping the fact that it's 200 million of them. And so he says, I actually heard the number in reference to this army of demons. And for John, it would be particularly difficult to imagine himself because of the vast number of these these warriors. By the way, this is not some foreign army from the east. This isn't China that's mounted 200 million soldiers. This isn't the Battle of Armageddon where the kings of the east do march on Israel. That will come later. I know of no, nor would anyone, of any secret weapon of war that some country is breeding that looks like an animal that breathes fire. This is demonic, supernatural, and even more distinctively it is. These are indestructible. Notice verse 17. I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire, that is fiery red, and of hyacinth, that's deep blue, and of brimstone, which is from the word thyades, which happens to be yellow, sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of the lions. He says, I've never seen an animal like this, but it kind of reminds me of a lion. And out of their mouths proceed fire... Not like fire, but fire. Literal fire, smoke, and brimstone. And a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouth. So here come these charging half-stallion, half-lion heads that look like lions, but they also have the ability to breathe fire out of their mouths like dragons now long extinct, but described with clarity in the book of Job. But that's not all. Notice verse 18, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents, they have living heads, and with them they do much harm. Somehow their tails, having heads like a serpent, have the ability to bite. You talk about a weapon of mass destruction, this is it. And remember as well that when John saw this vision, there were not 200 million people living on the planet. This exceeded world population. Here is a demonic army of 200 million, each one riding a strange creature, and they gallop forward, a blazing fire out of their mouths, killing one third of the rest of the people on the planet who are still alive. By the way, let me, let me say this none of this is to purify the church, it is to hurt mankind, verse 10. And it is to kill mankind. Verse 15. For those who say the church is going to go through the tribulation to be purified have not spent enough time studying the tribulation. At least taking it at face value. Because if you take enough of these verses at face value, simply and plainly interpret the text without any mental or grammatical gymnastics, you can easily see why the Apostle John, back in Revelation chapter 3, wanted the church to know that they would be taken out of and away from this horrifying hour of tribulation. They wouldn't be there. The church has never been and never will be purified by demons. Never. These who live will be killed, many of them. The church already having been rescued from this terror to come and those who have trusted Christ will be martyred by the millions and those who are still living here protected in the fifth trumpet may indeed die in the sixth. Can you imagine this terror like some creature that rides into battle from a Tolkien novel with bodies that run as fast as horses and teeth that can crush and kill as quickly as their riders can. These demons and their animals are going to look like 
they're armored with fire, they're equipped with with the ability to throw flame and they're going to kill everybody in their path. And remember already, about 25% of the world's population has died during the first four seals. Added at the millions who've already been martyred for their newfound faith in Christ, still more died from drinking embittered water in that previous trumpet judgment we studied already. And now one-third of the remaining alive are killed by demons. Add up the numbers and you've got about 50% of the world's population who've died so far in just a matter of a few years. Incredible carnage everywhere. So with that in mind, you would imagine the remaining verses of this revelation. People would say to the Antichrist, some Messiah you are, some leader you are, Some utopia you've delivered us into. We're out of here. We're going to follow the other one that you hate so much. Instead, they remain under his spell, having probably more than likely been abandoned by God to believe the lie. And instead, they continue to cling to the delusion of the Antichrist. And notice their response, which shocks me every time I've studied it and every time I see it. Verse 20, and the rest... Those who are alive now, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues repented of the works of their hands. You with me? It's not what it says, is it? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. Can you imagine? Hearts like Pharaoh's hardened after the plagues. They at this point hate God as much, perhaps, as the devil himself. John will point out five sins that they're going to cling to. Let me go through them quickly. The first is idolatry in the text. Mankind will still cling to their idol antichrist. They're still going to worship the demon world, the natural world, uh, their stump, the water, whatever, the moon, the the thing they fashioned with their hands out of rock or, or wood. As unbelievable as it may seem, men and women are going to remain committed to earth and nature rather than the creator. They're going to cling to their idolatry. And John, interestingly enough, and I got to say and rush forward, makes idolatry tantamount to worshiping demons. You look back in the text there. They're worshiping the works of their hands so as you know, not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver. In other words, they are, they are effectively equating what you create with the demon world. Imagine, and I have been to places around the world and I have seen shrines. I've been to temples. I've stood outside courtyards where they've sacrificed goats. I've seen it and you can, you can literally sense and feel the demonic presence. It is Their worship is clearly equated by John as the worship of demons. The mask will come off. Idolatry. They're going to cling to it. They're going to hold on to it, though. They're going to cling to murdering. Number two. Gone is all the value of human life. Here they are surrounded by decaying corpses. People have stopped burying anybody. And yet they're going to think nothing of adding to the number. The value of human life is going to be absolutely Worthless as mankind plays out what the demons really did believe about them anyway. In their hatred, they viewed them as worthless. Sorceries, number three, 
This comes from the word pharmakia. They're going to cling to their pharmakia. That gives, that gives us our word pharmacy. If you're a pharmacist, don't sweat it. You know, you don't have to quit your job. This is a reference to drugs and the, and the illicit use of drugs. The word, in fact, has an elastic use and can be used for incantations and spells and charms and can even be used for seances and witchcraft and contacting mediums, amulets, the little crystals that people have faith in. These are all sorceries and people are going to cling to them. John also mentions people will cling to immorality. This word is porneia. Gives us our word pornography. It's a general term for sexual relations of any kind outside of marriage. Imagine, friends, in the face of death, having survived scorpion demons, having survived fire-breathing creatures. Even after that trumpet judgment is over, mankind will still cling to sexual things, pornography, addictions, adulteries, Drug fixes and abuse as he abandons himself to do whatever he wants to do. As he self-destructs. Finally, John mentions that people will be unwilling to give up their thieving. The word has to do with stealing. In other words, morality and honesty is a thing of the past. No one will trust anybody. Everybody will live and operate by lying. And you can only imagine... With the scarce supplies of food and clothing and shelter and water and medicine, it's going to be the law of the jungle. And stealing will become a way of life. This is a grim picture, isn't it? You came to church today to hear all about this. This is what it's going to be like. What about the believer for today? What can it, what can it profit us And we can take home and then into our lives tomorrow. Let me give you three quick things. Number one, I believe a chapter like this can accomplish several responses. The first, it can increase our appreciation for the sovereignty of God. He remains enthroned even in these incredibly dark and demonic days. His will is being accomplished. Secondly, it magnifies for us the mercy of God. And you would think, Stephen, now where did you see that word? Well, think about it. He could easily move to wipe mankind from the face of the earth. He didn't need seven trumpets. He didn't need four seals. He could have just done it. But in all of this, there is the continuing mercy of God to give even unbelieving mankind one more breath before they enter eternal hell. And even this will be better than that. By giving us glimpses of his wrath... By showing people the terrors of the demonic world, he invites, effectively invites you and me and our world to be rescued. In a chapter like this, it says there's no hope but in Christ. Run to Christ and find in him mercy. It reminds us, thirdly and finally, of the reality and seriousness of the demonic world. It is a real world. It is a limited world. It is dependent on the permission of God, but it is vicious. It isn't something you play with. It isn't something you dabble in. In fact, in this chapter, vicious, bloodthirsty demons are going to hold the world hostage. So let this be an invitation 
to all today who do not believe in Jesus Christ, run to him. He's your only hope. He's your only hope. And for those who do believe in Christ alone, this chapter leads you, it should lead us all, to thank him. To thank him that we have been rescued from the wrath of God. Both this time of wrath, this hour of wrath, and the final wrath of God poured out on all those who don't believe in eternal hell. So thank him that by his grace you've come from darkness into, into the light. That by his grace he's given you the gift of faith which you've responded in, in believing him. Thank him for his grace. This will never be your experience in life. It will not be your experience in the life to come. Amen? Father, thank you. As you reveal the horror of these days, you have revealed to us your grace and your mercy. And we would all say, those of us who believe that your son is the living Lord and he is Lord of our lives, we still would say, we don't deserve your grace. That's why it's been given to us. Unmerited, freely a gift from you. All we can do is thank you that this horror will never be a part of our lives. We have been rescued from the wrath to come. And should that trumpet blow, which signals the rapture of the church, should the shout of that particular archangel be heard by us and we whisked away, we know, having studied this, what will befall earth and humanity. And so, Lord, a fourth thing that this chapter ought to do is is build in us a greater passion and desire to give the gospel to those around us. To invite all to come and drink from the water of life. So may our lives be testimonies of those who are redeemed and rescued. Help us not to take it for granted, but to leave even today more grateful for your grace and the work you are accomplishing in our lives and more alert to the enemy that roams about like a lion seeking someone to discredit. Cause us to be thankful. Cause us to be faithful and alert. Thank you.